Find the life you didn't think was possible with the Jesus you never knew. Together, let's slow down a little and pay better attention to the most significant person in history. Welcome to the podcast, Paying Ridiculous Attention to Jesus, with your host, Rick Lawrence, brought to you by Lifetree. Visit us at JesusCenteredLife.com. Well, hi, listeners. This is Season 5, Episode 1, brought to you by Lifetree at PainRidiculousAttentionToJesus.com, our very first episode of 2020. My name is Rick. I'm author of the book that was released, um, well, middle of last year, The God Who Fights For You, and before that, The Spiritual Grid, and before that, The Jesus-Centered Life. And before that, I was the general editor of The Jesus-Centered Bible, which I know many of you listening right now... Um, that's that's your favorite Bible because you tell us so. So, uh, and also we just finished uh, finished up selling out of all of our uh, available inventory of the Jesus Center Planner. Uh, that planner um, sold out in a month. Uh, so a lot of people love that planner. But I was just told by a little birdie that there are still Jesus Center planners available on Amazon, just not directly from us. So. Uh, whatever you find on Amazon are the last ones. So if you are looking for, in this new year, a planner to help uh, not only uh, chronicle and guide and uh, inform your life, but also an influence, a daily influence that draws you in a closer relationship with Jesus, uh, head on over to Amazon and look for look and see if you can get one of the last copies of the Jesus-Centered Planner. And by the way, I also just finished... Uh, the 365-day devotional we're calling the Jesus-Centered Daily. I just finished my manuscript for that, and now it's entering into the editorial process. So that will be coming out uh, later this year at the end of the summer. We'll be telling you more about that. But that is maybe the the, the largest, most demanding project, a writing project of my life, is writing a daily devotional. So I'm very excited about it. It has all kinds of interesting ways to engage you, surprising ways to engage you in an everyday intimate relationship with Jesus. So we'll, we'll talk more about that um, when it gets closer to time. But in this episode today, we're still exploring what we call the beeline practices. These are, uh, these are uh, ev- an everyday menu of playful ways we can uh, draw near to Jesus. And uh, the beeline practices make up about the last, I don't know, two-thirds of my book, The Jesus-Centered Life. And they're simply a menu of possibilities of different things we can do to reorient ourselves uh, so that Jesus is at the center of everything we do. It's not a to-do list. It's not a sh- list of shoulds. It's simply some possibilities. And uh, there's 19 of them that I've created for the book, and they come from C.H. Spurgeon, who originally, back in the day, the Victorian preacher, uh, lived his life by following the beeline to Jesus and everything he did or said. That meant that wherever he started, he followed uh, the path back to Jesus, um, whether it was him teaching, preaching, or just in his everyday life. He was always trying to find and follow a beeline back to Jesus in his life, and so that's the idea here, that we're just exploring... um, these 19 different ways that we can uh, reorient ourselves so that Jesus is at the center of our life. So uh, here we are. I think this is number 17 of those 19. And today's focus is, in the book, it's called Ignoring Funhouse Mirrors. 
And I, I was trying to think of another way of describing that um, as a as a practice in our everyday life, and it's really reorienting our identity around the mirror that Jesus gives us for our identity, because we are surrounded by mirrors in our life, mirrors that are telling us what to think about ourselves and what and and they're competing to try to mold our identity um, into uh, uh, mold our identity into into something that we live our life by. And so there couldn't be some there couldn't be anything more important than this is the identity that you're living out of in your life. And there are all kinds of mirrors around you competing to try to tell you how to live that life and live that identity. So the, the, the mirrors that I'm talking about are really the words and reflections and reactions of, the, of these forming influences in our life. This is a dangerous business because both Jesus and his enemy are competing to win our permission from us, the permission to either mo- uh, find ourselves molded into the image of God or permission to destroy us from the inside out by polluting our identity. So I thought it would be interesting to start off by uh, listening to a scene from one of my favorite all-time films. It's called The Way, Way Back. This is the opening scene of the film, and it gives a perfect uh, picture of what it looks like and feels like and sounds like to have a mirror in your life that intends to destroy you, that is giving you feedback about your identity that it's intended to plant a, a destructive bug uh, destructive narrative in your story uh, that will follow you the rest of your life and undermine your ability to see yourself as you really are, to see yourself as Jesus sees you. So uh, this is the very opening scene of the film. Let me just set this up for you since it's going to be um, a little bit hard to understand if you can't see the visuals, so let me paint a visual for you. Uh, this is a, The Way Way Back is the story of uh, a young boy named Duncan, whose parents have recently divorced, and his mother is now dating a man named Trent. And um, the little he knows about Trent, he doesn't like. Um, And it's not just that he's resentful that his parents got divorced, but there's something about Trent that he he just doesn't connect to. And uh, his mom, Duncan's mom, has decided that that, uh, Duncan and his sister and she are going to go with Trent to his beach house for a few weeks uh, during the summer. For I, around a month of their summer is going to be spent at this beach house, and the film starts off with uh, all four of them in this one of those um, fake wood paneled station wagons that uh, you you uh, if you're my age they were common but now they're vintage. But you see them all crowded into this uh, uh, station wagon. They're on their way to the beach house, and everyone's asleep except for Trent, who's driving. And Duncan, who's in the way, way back seat of this station wagon. And Trent decides to strike up a conversation with Duncan while his mom and his sister are asleep. So let's listen to this uh, conversation. The first voice you're going to hear is Trent, who's, who's driving the car. He's played by Steve Carell, so you'll recognize his voice. So let's just listen to this scene. It's about three or four minutes long. Let's listen. Duncan, are you sleeping? Let me ask you something. On a scale of one to ten, what do you think you are? Uh, 
Duncan, I'm asking you how you see yourself. Scale of one to ten. I don't know. I can't hear you, bud. You have to speak up. I don't know. What? What don't you know? How you see yourself? You don't have any opinion. I'm just asking. Pick any number. Scale of one to ten. Just, just shout it out. Just say a number. A six. A what? A six. I think you're a three. You know why I think you're a three? You know what would make me say that? No. You don't know? You have no idea. No. I. You gotta speak up, buddy. No. Well, since I've been dating your mom, I don't see you putting yourself out there, bud. Meeting kids your own age, and from what your mom tells me, you just seem content to hang around her apartment. Is that a fair assessment? You're just happy to not do anything? Cause, damn, that's, to me, that is a three. But the good news, I'm here to tell you, is that there are gonna be plenty of kids, plenty of opportunities for you to take advantage of at my beach house this summer. It's a big summer for all of us, really. You, your mom, me, Steph. One day, we could become a family. So what do you say? Let's try to get that score up, huh? Aim higher than a three? That sound good? You up for that, buddy? Okay, there we have it. The opening scene for the way, way back. And uh, at the end of that scene, Duncan just turns around. His face it just looks contorted. And he puts his earbuds in, and he just doesn't want to listen to Trent any longer. And the way this plays out in the film is that Duncan spends the rest of the the story that the film unfolds wrestling with that assessment that he's a three and wondering if that's really the truth and trying to come to grips with the pain and destruction that that description has caused in him. And he meets along the way some... Uh, unlikely people who see uh, how extraordinary he is and reflect back to him his beauty. And then the wrestling match is, who is he going to listen to? Is he going to listen to the voice of Trent inside that that has assessed him as a three, or is he going to listen to, uh, metaphorically, the voice of God, reflecting back to him the truth about his being? That's Duncan's wrestling match, the whole film. It's our wrestling match in life. Who will we listen to? And which voices will be stronger in our lives? Which voices will we trust more in our lives? And this is true also, obviously, for everyone around us. We are not only surrounded by mirrors, we are mirrors ourselves. We mirror back to the people in our life and the people we encounter in our life some truth about who they are as well. And to the extent that we are um, uh, partnering with Jesus in his kingdom of God mission to reflect back the truth about everyone, but to the extent that we are on board with him and, and 
uh, doing our best to accurately reflect back to the people around us the truth about who they are, um, we are then advancing the kingdom of God on earth. This is essentially what Jesus is trying to do, is reestablish our identity as beloved, as family members in, in the kingdom of God. And meanwhile, we, we have an enemy who's trying to instead, to use Jesus' parable, plant weeds in our garden at night so that those weeds grow up simultaneously to the, to the crop that we really want. And he sneaks into our field at night, and he scatters those seeds, and those seeds are scattered in our identity. Um, and you can see in this little clip from the way, way back, Trent is a source of weeds in Duncan's life. He's planting a weed in his soul, and the intent of that weed is to choke out the growth, the beauty, the crop that Jesus is intending to grow. Satan intends to plant those weeds so they choke out all other kinds of life, and that's the story of the film. Duncan has to uh, figure out um, which, which one of those voices he's going to listen to and allow to identify in him. So, uh, so we need to hear the voice of Jesus naming us. We need to be close enough to the mirror of Jesus that the dominant reflection in our life is the one he's giving us. This is uh, clearly what he did with Peter toward the, toward the end of, of uh, Jesus' time on earth when the disciples go out fishing and catch nothing, and they see this, the figure of this man on the beach who tells them to throw their net out on uh, the starboard side of the boat, and they catch a lot of fish, and they recognize that must be Jesus, and they find their way to shore, and they eat breakfast with him, and then... Of course, Jesus has this iconic encounter with Peter where he asks him whether he loves him three times in a row. And what he's doing here is he's reestablishing himself as a primary mirror in Peter's life because Peter's done the worst thing that he could possibly imagine that he would do, which is betray Jesus and betray him not only uh, three times, but also betray him to a little girl, not not a, a fearsome warrior. He, he gives up so easily. And now his identity is polluted. Now the mirror that's been planted in him is, is accusing him all, uh, all the time of being a betrayer, of being a weak man, of being a man who, who's all talk and no do. And here Jesus on the beach asks him if he loves him three times in a row because he's trying to recover Peter's identity. He's trying to reestablish connection with Peter so that Peter believes in the mirror Jesus is giving him more than the accusing voice inside of him. And what does that accusing voice say about us, or say about what is Duncan thinking in the back of that station wagon? Well, we and he are thinking things like, you'll never be good enough. You'll always be a three. Even if you can fool other people into thinking you're a six or a seven or an eight, you and I know you'll always be a three. There's that voice. Or the voice of your, your performance is what's really important, not your effort in something. It's whether um, you successfully perform, um, and, and that means that your heart has nothing to do with this. It's really what you produce that matters. Or the voice that says, you damage and spoil everything you touch. I mean, everything you try really gets, uh, gets some of the toxic poison emanating from you on it, and you just kill things. Um, or the voice that says, the reason that others treat you badly is because they see who you really are. 
uh, you're only being treated the way you should be treated, and it's those people who see you as, as you really are. See how insidious that is, too. We sometimes give our deepest trust to the most destructive voices in our life. So uh, that voice can also say something like, uh, well, people will always let you down. Uh, look at your look at your experiences in life. People will always let you down. So you'd better protect yourself. You'd better be self reliant. You better never open yourself to anyone, um, because if you do, it will it'll it's just going to be your downfall. They're just going to see the real you and reject you. So you better you better hunker down in your own bubble in your own bunker, and not connect with others. Um, or the, the uh, or that voice might say the the reflection you see in in the mirror is so flawed. Um, the reflection you tell yourself about yourself is so flawed, you may never find someone to love you. Because if they saw you as you really are, why would they ever love you? Do any of these things resonate with you? Do the, any of these mirrors have a, have a place in your life? Have you given them permission to speak to you in this way in your life? Well, all of us have in one way or another, and you hear it in the mirror that Trent gives Duncan in this little scene. It's this poisonous uh, reflection of his identity. So these mirrors are trying to define us. You know, in that old animated film, Disney film, Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs, there's a perfect picture of it. The witch's power is eclipsed by the one thing that's more uh, sort of potent, I guess you could call it, than her sorcery. That's the magic mirror on the wall. In the, in the film, the most powerful the, the most powerful entity in the film is the mirror on the wall, <laughs> uh, not so much the witch's uh, dark magic. So as long as the mirror reinforces the witch's fragile psyche, which is essentially, as long as the mirror says that the witch and no other is really the fairest of them all, then the witch is confident and determined and on top of things. But uh, And that's because in, in the film and in our life, we, we assume that the mirror never lies that the mirror really knows the truth about us. But one day, if you remember, the witch um, asks the mirror who's the fairest of them all, and the answer she hears back is this. This is directly from the shooting script of the film. The mirror says, My queen, you, you are the fairest here, so true. But Snow White beyond the mountains at the Seven Dwarfs is a thousand times more beautiful than you. Oh my gosh, then the witch's whole... The, her whole interior kingdom collapses. Her whole idea of herself, what she has propped up her identity on, collapses when the when the mirror says back to her that uh, there is one much, much more beautiful than you. We invest in these mirrors in our life. We give them the power to define us. And this, by the way, is not an error that we need to fix about ourselves, because God has actually wired us to find our identity outside of ourselves. It's not something we can fix. You'll never be mature enough um, so that the outside mirrors don't have any impact on your identity. You will never get there, because we're wired this way by, by Jesus in the first place. But if we are like this witch, if we treat the mirrors that speak into our life as infallible, um, then we have left ourselves vulnerable to identity poisoning. So we have to be discerning about the mirrors in our life. That's why this, uh, this beeline practice is, calling, is called ignoring funhouse mirrors. A funhouse mirror is a distorted mirror by definition. 
And when you're in a fun house and the mirror is distorted, it's funny to look at yourself all distorted like that. But you would never want to walk out of that funhouse mirror room and be permanently disfigured or or distorted the way you saw yourself inside there. You'd never want that to be your permanent identity. And yet that's what our real-life funhouse mirrors that surround us are attempting to do. They're attempting to form us into that distorted uh, image. So this is why Jesus tells us over and over again in so many ways that he is the only perfect reflection uh, that, that will reflect back to us who we really are. He is the perfect reflection of the God we can't see, and he in turn gives us our perfect reflection of who we really are. And this is his promise to us, that he will perfectly reflect back to us who we really are if we will invite him to be our living mirror on the wall. <laughs> so the the one that we go to repeatedly and the one that we trust most deeply is Jesus. He is our mirror on the wall. And when we go to him and say, who are we really? We hear back the truth about ourselves. So we know that the answer Jesus gives us back will be both exacting, and what I mean by that is he tells us that the love of God knows every hair on our head. So he's trying to say, I pay ridiculous attention to the details of who you are. So the answer he gives us back is both very exacting and specific and nuanced, um, but it's also at the same moment cherishing. It's one thing to have someone study you in an exacting way, but use that information to destroy you. That's what the enemy of God does. Uh, but when Jesus studies us and knows the hairs on the number of the hairs on our head, he cherishes us. Because in Matthew 10, he says, Don't be afraid. You're more valuable to God than a whole flock of sparrows. He's trying to say you're of inestimable value to the Trinity. We not only study you, we cherish you. So this is the one-two punch of our mirror on the wall named Jesus. So um, if we think about the evidence that we have in our life, when we, when we stop and pause for a minute and take a look at our life and the, and the outcomes and fruits of our life, what do we notice about the impact of the mirrors in our life? Well, and where are these mirrors? Where do we find them? Well, the advertisers have invaded every nook and cranny in our lives. Uh, researchers say that we're exposed to more than 12,000 direct and indirect marketing messages every day, every one of them a little mirror, mirroring back to us who we are, what we, what we should have, what we don't have, um, whether we're successful, whether we're attractive, um, whether others might be drawn to us. These marketing messages uh, assault us at the clip of more than 12,000 a day, and those messages would like us to believe, uh, essentially, that consumption is central to our identity. They paint a line, a mirrored reflection back to us that re reflects back that we're primarily consumers, and in our consumption we find our identity. Uh, the voices of authority in our lives, whoever those voices of authority are, they'd like us uh, often to believe that only our performance is the true mark of our identity, that how we succeed in, in, in the tasks that we're given or the obstacles that we face in life, that's our true identity. Or our family sometimes insists that our true identity is whatever they decided it was when we were when we were children. Uh, have you have you grown up trying to get out from under the shadow of the way your birth family 
decided to de- to describe you. Um, families often slot their children early on into very narrow roles. So that's a possibility that you've been formed by the the mirrors of your birth family. The music that we listen to, either directly or indirectly, it's painting a uh, for for, mo- for the most part. The music that we listen to paints a picture that. Our sexuality and our ability to exert power over others is indicative of our true value. Or the TV shows and films that we watch, they, they often force us into a, a sort of a, a hidden, under-the-table comparison with people who are richer, more attractive, more interesting, more risky, and more successful than we are, painting a picture of us that says, I'll never be enough, because I can't match that image. The enemies that we have in life would like us to believe that we're no more valuable than a, a piece of garbage or a landscaping problem that just needs to be bulldozed. Our enemies would like us to, to believe that we are nothing. And our social media mirrors, uh, that the explosion of social media in the last decade, the, the, our social media mirrors um, would like us to believe that, we're on, uh, that our identity is, is only gauged in comparison to others. Uh, and so it it engenders a comparison mindset in us, and we only feel good and solid about ourselves if we come out on top in that comparison. And yet that, that source of our identity is so fragile, it's easily toppled over. So let's, let's pursue a few um, little encounters that Jesus had with people where there's some remirroring going on to understand what he's doing in people's lives and how he's doing it. So the first one that I'd like us to take a look at is in Matthew chapter 9, and this is when Jesus uh, heals a paralyzed man um, in front of some Pharisees and teachers of the law, and they really don't like what he says. So let's read this starting in Matthew chapter 9, verse 1. Here we go. Jesus climbed into a boat and went across the lake um, to his own town. Some people brought to him a paralyzed man on a mat. And seeing their faith, Jesus said to the paralyzed man, Be encouraged, my child, your sins are forgiven. But some of the teachers of religious law said to themselves, That's blasphemy. Does he think he's God? Well, Jesus knew what they were thinking, so he asked them, Why do you have such evil thoughts in your hearts? Is it easier to say your sins are forgiven or stand up and walk? So I'll prove to you that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. And then Jesus turned to the paralyzed man and said, Stand up, pick up your mat, and go home. And the man jumped up and went home. Fear swept through the crowd as they saw this happen, and they praised God for giving humans such authority. So here, um, Jesus, in his own inexplicable and surprising way, he's brought a paralyzed man who has obvious physical needs, and instead he tells the man his, his sins are forgiven. So when Jesus looks at a person, he sees, of course, the outward appearance of that person, their physical being, but he also sees something equally important. And in the case of this man, that he, he is not only paralyzed on the outside, he's paralyzed on the inside. His sins have paralyzed and captivated him. They have kept him in prison. And so Jesus sees uh, that need as the primary need. Uh, even though the man is paralyzed and, and he's brought to Jesus for physical healing, Jesus sees another primary need. And that need is, is embedded in that man's identity. His identity is that he is locked up and imprisoned by a sin. And Jesus opens the door to that captivity and releases him 
from his identity as a man caught up and oppressed by sin. Now he is free. So Jesus here is is mirroring back to the man by forgiving him that he is now free to be in relationship with, with God, that he is clean again, that his identity is not polluted and toxic, um, that he can live out of his true nature, his true identity now. And as an afterthought, he heals his paralyzation as well. <laughs> he, he can do both. But in this case, we're clearly seeing Jesus prioritize the two forms of paralyzation in this man, and it infuriates the Pharisees and teachers of the law. But Jesus is putting them on notice that this is what I do. This is my job description. I am working to set captives free, and the way I do that is I re-mirror their identity so that they come to believe in, in who they were created to be in the first place. And, and who we are created to be is people um, who are in intimate relationship with God. The, the whole purpose of Jesus' coming was to reestablish our ability to be in intimate relationship with God. That is the source of all of our identity. So here Jesus reor- reorients this man on the fly and gives him what he didn't ask for, <laughs> but he, he didn't know that he needed it when Jesus gave it to him. But And the, relig- the religious leaders are infuriated by this because Jesus is acting like God when he does this. And there's a kind of an ironic twist there in that actually Jesus is acting like God. This is what God does. He, uh, he uh, offers us um, the grace to return to the identity that really does define us. So let's take a look at another another uh, little encounter. This one is uh, in Matthew chapter 16, and this, is, uh, uh, this involves Peter again. This is the, the first time pub- uh, publicly that anyone ever proclaims that Jesus is the Messiah. And we've talked about this scene before on the podcast, but we're going to add a little twist to this today. So this is Matthew chapter 16, starting in verse 13. When Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? Well, they replied, some say John the Baptist, some say Elijah, and others say Jeremiah, one of the other prophets. Then he asked them, well, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter answered, you're the Messiah, the Son of the living God. And Jesus replied, you're blessed, Simon, son of John, because my Father in heaven has revealed this to you. You did not learn this from any human being. Now I say to you that you are Peter, which means rock, and upon this rock I'll build my church, and all the powers of hell will not conquer it. And I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you forbid on earth will be forbidden in heaven, and whatever you permit on earth will be permitted in heaven. Now this is such a powerful encounter, and there's all kinds of mirroring going on in this scene. Jesus is asking his disciples, um, who, who do all of the people that have just experienced me, who do they say that I am? He's essentially saying, um, what reflection are they mirroring back about me? And the disciples say, well, you know, basically the wrong answer, John the Baptist or Elijah or Jeremiah or some other prophet. Um, that's not an accurate reflection of Jesus. It's not true. That, that does not describe who he is. And then Jesus asks, well, who do you say that I am? And Peter reveals what God has revealed to him, that Jesus is the Messiah. 
Peter speaks out an accurate mirroring reflection of who Jesus is, and Jesus says, there's no way you could have come up with that on your own. My Father revealed that to you because he's the only source of true mirroring. Peter's just the carrier of that true reflection, and he speaks it out to Jesus in public for the first time. And then notice what Jesus does. He says back to Peter, let me give you your true reflection. Whatever you've grown up thinking yourself to be, all of that's not really true. The truth about who you are is, you're, is embodied in, in, in the new name I'm giving you. You are the rock, and I'm going to build my church on that rock. That's your true identity. So Jesus, bubbling over with gratefulness for the way Peter has just accurately mirrored back to him his identity, in turn accurately mirrors back Peter's identity. This is the work of Jesus in every person's life, to find a way to be the most trusted mirror in their life. Let's look at one more. This is from John chapter 3. Let me flip over here in my Jesus-centered Bible to John chapter 3, and I think we're going to start out the very beginning of the, the chapter here. This is his encounter, Jesus' encounter with Nicodemus. And yes, we have talked about this on the podcast as well before, but we'll, we'll, uh, we'll uh, treat this with a little twist here as well. So uh, John chapter 3, starting in verse 1. There was a man named Nicodemus, a Jewish religious leader who was a Pharisee. After dark one evening, he came to speak with Jesus. Rabbi, he said, we all know that God has sent you to teach us. Your miraculous signs are evidence that God is with you. Jesus replied, I tell you the truth, unless you're born again, you cannot see the kingdom of God. Well, what do you mean, exclaimed Nicodemus? How can an old man go back into his mother's womb and be born again? Jesus replied, I assure you, no one can enter the kingdom of God without being born of water and the Spirit. Humans can re reproduce only human life, but the Holy Spirit gives birth to spiritual life. So don't be surprised when I say to you, you must be born again. Let's just stop there for a second. So uh, let's slow down here. What's really happening here? Jesus is saying, yes, you are born physically, but you also have a spirit, and your spirit has been polluted by toxic, poisonous, distorted reflections in your life, and your identity is no longer what it was always intended to be. You must be born again. And Nicodemus can't understand this, because physically speaking, how can this ever happen? And Jesus explains to him, I'm not talking about your physical birth. That's one thing, but there needs to be a rebirth of your identity, and only the Holy Spirit can transform that identity and rebirth it into what into the truth about who it, who it really is. We've just come through the holiday season, and you've likely been with extended family over that time, and likely you've been under the leverage of how your extended family has seen you and will always see you the ways they pressure you into small boxes about who you are. And you've likely experienced some of that in a visceral way, and, and it can feel almost claustrophobic sometimes that you, you, you just can't get out from under the outside of the box that you've been put in. And it's, you have to consciously wrestle against some of the toxic ways that others reflect back to you your identity. I know in our family, we always wrestle with this after we have had long stretches of time with our extended family. We almost have to go through detox to re-remember who we really are, to be re-mirrored by Jesus, 
and and to have the lies and deceptions that have tried to attach themselves to us exposed and then eradicated. Or another way of saying it is we have to go through a de-weeding process where Jesus walks through our field and pulls up some of the weeds that were plant that were planted in our soul during these extended times around uh, uh, our family. Um, this is just what happens to our spirit when these toxic reflections uh, are thrown at us. And here Jesus is saying to Nicodemus, it's, it, it's not, in, in order for you to live in the kingdom of God, you're going to have to live in your true identity, and that's what I've come to do, to rebirth that identity so that it's true and good instead of uh, whatever it's become now. We're going to take one last quick look. This is not an encounter with, uh, with Jesus. This is Paul writing in 1 Corinthians um, about our identity, and I just thought I'd close off with this little portion from 1 Corinthians chapter 13, starting in verse 11. Let me see if I can flip to verse 11 here. Here we go. Um, here's what Paul says. When I was a child, I spoke and thought and reasoned as a child. But when I grew up, I put away childish things. Now, now we see things imperfectly, like puzzling reflections in a mirror but then we will see everything with perfect clarity. All that I know now is partial and incomplete, but then I will know everything completely, just as God now knows me completely. Wow. So what Paul is saying is um, he's describing the reality that we've been talking about this whole episode. He's, he's saying, uh, here I see imperfectly, and I see myself imperfectly. I see a distorted image of myself. But, um, but as I draw near to God, as I draw near to inti intimacy with Jesus, I begin to wipe away some of the fuzz on, on that identity. I begin to see myself clearly. Um, all that I know now is partial and incomplete, but then I will know everything completely, just as God now knows me completely. So the one who knows us completely and cherishes us completely, is the only one who can really describe us perfectly. And Paul is saying, this is the process of what it means to be in relationship with Jesus, to continuously invite him to re-mirror our soul and to tell us the truth about who we are. And the, the way we do this in our daily life is to continuously, like the, the witch in Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs, Go back to that mirror on the wall and ask that mirror through the day, can you describe me for who I really am? I have to say that when I'm struggling the most it's in life, it's usually because I've got some weeds planted in my field and I'm wrestling with them, and, and initially I try to wrestle against them on my own, in my own power. But there comes a point in time when I realize that uh, I'm sort of powerless to get on top of it, and so... What I will often do is just, like a child, just go to Jesus and say, Jesus, I need to be reminded of what you see in me. I need to see the reflection of me in you again. I need to know what you think of me. Uh, in a, you put another way, Jesus, Jesus on the wall, <laughs> please describe me. Um, so I use him as my mirror. I ask him to reflect back to me what's what's most true about me, and then I wait in silence 
for him to remind me. Or I ask him, again as a child, can you please um, bring some more accurate mirrors into my life? I'm hungry to know what the truth about my identity is, and so teach me to discern, but please bring into my life mirrors that will mirror back to me the, the truth that you see in me. And we obviously also, in closing, we can, we can do this for others too. In fact, this is, uh, as I talked about at the start of the podcast, this is uh, our grand adventure in life, is to join Jesus in his mission, his kingdom of God mission, to set others free by reflecting back to them the truth about their identity, to be better mirrors in their life. So that means whenever we experience someone, it could be anyone, a clerk at a store, a friend, a neighbor, your spouse, a coworker, a person we just met on the bus, we're simply asking ourselves underneath, uh, sort of like breathing, what word expresses what I'm experiencing in this person? You know, something that I admire or appreciate or enjoy. Um, it, it's, it's the practice of counting the hairs on the head which means paying attention to specific details about the person in a cherishing way, not in a destructive way. You're noticing the details and nuances of the other, and then simply reflecting back conversationally to that person what you experience in them. Um, And this can happen lots of different ways. In in the Jesus-centered life, I I just took one week and I listed off um, some of the things that I had mirrored back to people that week just randomly. And here are some of those things. You'll see the, the, the sort of the menu of possibility for how we reflect back to people what's, what's truer about who they are. So here's some examples from one week in my life about things that I've said, I said back to people trying to reflect back what was true about them. I love how curious you are. Or, you know, a lot of people hear things that are challenging, but you almost always do something as a result of what you hear. Or I said to another person, there's no problem in the world that wouldn't benefit from a little more of you. Or the people around you sense that you can be counted on. I said to a coworker, you've taught me so much about creativity. I said to my daughter um, during that week, if you had been a teenager when I was a teenager, I would have thought I'd won the lottery if you were my friend. Or, I said to uh, a, a mentor in my life, no one has had a more profound influence in my life besides my wife than you. I said to a fellow writer, you have a gift for writing in a deeply authentic way. You penetrate to the marrow when you write. I said to a store clerk, I saw how patient you were with that person. I just want you to know I noticed and I really admire how you carried yourself. Um, and I said to my other daughter, I never, ever consider whether or not you're giving your best effort. I always know you will. So you see that the kind of the breadth of the way that this mirroring happens, it's simply paying attention to the other in a, in a, in a concerted way. You're, again, put in your mind that picture of, of God counting the hairs on our head, that you're just noticing what you notice about the person, and then running it through the filter of, well, what do I, how am I experiencing the person and what, what can I speak out in a cherishing way that, that uh, mirrors back what I'm experiencing? These are powerful encounters. And the more this becomes like breathing to you, just like part of your identity, this is just what I do. This is how I operate in life. I try to mirror back to people in a natural way how I'm experiencing them. Um, 
so that uh, I can join in the kingdom of God's fight to release people from their captivity. This couldn't be more central to Jesus' mission on earth when we do this sort of thing. So the practice really involves just two simple things. This is what I'll leave you with. Notice what you notice about the people around you, then simply find a way to express what you notice. That's it. It has to be said out loud. People don't catch this by osmosis. They're not going to catch it just because of the way you, you react to them. They have to hear it. They have to hear those words um, expressing what you've experienced in them. Notice what you notice about people, then find a way to express what you notice. All right, gang, thanks for listening. Um, again, you, if you want more details or links to the things that we talked about today, and you can get a link to the, uh, the, the page for the Way, Way Back on this on, as well, if you're interested in seeing that film. It's a powerful film. We're about to use that film uh, for the second time as a film night with our small group. Um, back by popular demand. So we're going to watch it again uh, this Friday. So if you want a link to that, you'll find it here. But you, you need to go to painridiculousattentiontojesus.com, look for Season 5, Episode 1, and you'll, that's where you'll find the links. And, uh, and by the way, as long as you're there, you can check out the other resources I mentioned uh, as well, including the Jesus-Centered Planner, if you want to snag one of those before they're all gone. So again, this is Paying Ridiculous Attention to Jesus. It's a podcast from Lifetree. You can subscribe to us on iTunes or Google Play or wherever you get your podcasts, and we'll talk again next time.